0: From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics.
1: Dressed in jean shorts and tube socks, this new arrival is shivering as he and others are getting a good taste of a Chicago winter. There are about 280 migrants at the city's landing zone, packed into warming buses waiting for shelter as the cold rain pours down. Now, the flow of migrants continues into Chicago, and with the coldest weather of the season arriving, finding shelter has become even more imperative. We'll talk about the situation there coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, professor emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie has also been a longtime State House reporter and observer. And our guest this week, we have Heather Sharone back with us from Chicago tonight. Heather, always great to have you join us.
2: Glad to be here, Sean.
1: All right, well, let's get started. And Heather, you're the person who's been really following this, so I'm going to go to you. The latest on the asylum seekers coming into the city of Chicago, of course, bitter cold weather gripping the Midwest this weekend. Is the city prepared for this?
2: Well, I think that is really a crucial question. Uh, After the new year... A lot of the questions facing Mayor Brandon Johnson has involved the number of migrants that cannot find a spot in the city's 27 sh- or 28 shelters I should say and they're being kept on what are essentially CTA buses to stay warm at what's now known as the landing zone the area in the west loop where city officials have directed texas buses to drop off migrants now if buses drop off migrants in chicago without position without permission The city has begun impounding buses and fining bus operators, and that has meant many migrants have been dropped off without winter gear, without knowing really where they are in the Chicago suburbs, forcing suburbs to sort of scramble and get them to Chicago where there's at least some infrastructure to um, help them. But there are more than 14,500 people in those city shelters with about 400 people at the landing zone and at O'Hare and Midway trying to wait for a bed to open up Um, it is not clear whether the opening this week of a new shelter in a former little village cvs drugstore that's been vacant for a while will sort of help ease that crunch and it comes just a couple of days before another round of polar vortex type weather is supposed to descend on the city Almost coinciding perfectly with the first deadline for city officials to start evicting migrants who have been in the city shelters for more than sixty days, so there has been no New Year, New Year holiday for this to this crisis for Mayor Brandon Johnson, who is facing a good deal of um, immediate um, problems as he struggles.
1: You know, and I and I don't want to I don't know the situation quite as well certainly as you do. What is going on with this idea of evicting people if many of them are unable to find work or not given the opportunity to find work? Uh, Is that really going to happen? Can they actually just turn these people out?
2: Well, that I think is a sort of a a question that, that we are waiting to get answers to. The mayor hasn't taken questions since the holidays from reporters, so we haven't had a chance to sort of ask him those questions. The city, when they announced the new 60 day shelter limit did say that they would make an exception in the case of inclement or extreme weather. I think that you know, the forecast calling for uh, wind chills of 30 degrees below zero certainly qualifies as extreme. So it's not clear whether that will actually happen. But the fact of the matter is, is that the city is out of shelter space, its Mm -hmm. ability to open new shelters is constrained simply by the fact that there are limited numbers of, of buildings that can accommodate hundreds of people and of course the big question is who's going to pay for it and that remains um a question with a lot of question marks so to speak and not a lot of answers
1: yeah charlie what i'm hearing too is and heather mentioned it they're uh, not getting a lot of communication from the city again it makes it seem as though um, they don't really have all their ducks in a row. I don't, maybe it just, I know it's a difficult situation, but at the same time, it seems like more communication would be helpful.
0: Well, I think that's been the case since the onset that the communication has not been that, that, what would you say, robust between the, the people who are going to have to care for the folks who are arriving, the city administration, and there's been like zero communication from from the state of Texas and Governor Abbott, who's, sending immigrants from the southern border to a variety of democratic controlled areas, uh, New York, Chicago, Denver, to try and embarrass the Democrats and Joe Biden. And as a matter of fact, the, the, the folks who are arriving in Chicago, most of them are, are from tropic areas, a lot of them from Venezuela. And I'd be willing to bet that no one in Venezuela has ever had a been experienced wind chill of below zero. And you see the folks they arrive and they arrive and, and they're they're wearing sandals, they're wearing t-shirts. Some of them have thin blankets. And it's it's just really heartless and cruel. As a matter of fact, the the Chicago Tribune had an editorial this morning Friday. And the headline is, temperatures may not top zero on Monday. For God's sake, hold those buses, Governor Abbott, which I thought was really interesting. And the the shelter that was opened up is going to hold, I think, what was it? There's something like 200 people, mostly right. be yeah. women and children.
2: Yeah, that's correct.
0: And the buses are are really inadequate, they're crowded. and The folks don't get enough to eat. There's been stories, uh, one of the folks said, and I forget it was in, was it the Trib or the Sun-Times talked to a reporter and said, we only get like one meal a day and we go out and we scavenge for food in the trash. And I'm thinking, holy mackerel, what kind of a situation is this? What kind of a humanitarian crisis? And there's gotta be more done about it. And I think this coming week, I believe that uh, Mayor Johnson is going to meet with other mayors and officials from around the uh, area to discuss the migrant crisis and how to deal with it.
2: That's right. He's got a big meeting scheduled at the United Center um, with the, the conference of mayors in an attempt to sort of Uh, you know, address the situation holistically, because of course, Chicago um, is not the only city that is um, sort of bearing the brunt of Governor Abbott's attempts to make it difficult for President Joe Biden to win re-election, to slam him on his immigration policies. It's not clear to me, though, that without federal help, which does not seem to be coming based on the gridlock in Washington that um, anything is really going to change because Johnson and other mayors have been pleading for months, more than six months at this time um, for more federal help. And it just does not appear to be forthcoming, which means that states like New York um, and cities like New York City and Illinois and Chicago are, are pretty much on their own um, as arrivals to the border from people requesting asylum who are then being admitted into the uh, country to wait for those cases to be decided al- through a legal process, there- there's really no end in sight of this crisis, um, which, as the mayor frequently points out, is almost entirely man-made.
1: Charlie, Greg Abbott, he, he owns some of this as well, of course, by busing these people. But doesn't Joe Biden possibly owe some of this as well? Because you can't just blame it all on gridlock in Washington. It seems as though the president does have some authority to provide some assistance here.
0: Yeah, I I have argued, goodness, for months now that were I the president, I would authorize work permits for all these folks who want to work. It would be, hey, Wheeler, you want to work? And hey, Crawford, you want to hire him? Fine, go ahead but it doesn't work that way. They, a couple of months ago, the uh, federal bureaucracy said, we are gonna accelerate this and we're gonna authorize Venezuelans as being eligible for work permits, but there's still a lot of red tape that they have to go through. And it, so it was like, well, instead of taking a year, maybe it only take about four or five months. And I'm thinking you ought to make it immediate because there are jobs, out there there are employers who are begging to be allowed to hire these willing workers many of whom are professionals and who had careers of their own back in venezuela before the the economic and political crises there impelled them to leave their country make the arduous journey and arrive in chicago hoping to start a new life for themselves and their families so, yeah, I agree. I think the president, if, as I said, were I the president, I'd stretch my executive authority and issue work permits and let the naysayers sue me and we will litigate it in court. And it'll take several months before it's decided. And even if I lose in the interim, those folks will be working and supporting their families without needing city assistance or state assistance, finding housing and being able to establish and begin their new lives here in this country have we
1: heard any more on this heather or anything that you've heard happening with that
2: so you know several months ago uh... President Biden did issue what's called temporary protected status for people who arrived from Venezuela before July 31st. And that makes them eligible to apply for work permits, which the governor and the mayor had been asking the president to do for months up until that point. So that process has given, you know, some number of Venez- Venezuelan migrants permission to work. Um, However, fewer than a thousand people have made it through the very complicated and expensive process of applying for those work permits. And Charlie's 100% right. There's certainly a need for workers with unemployment still near all-time lows, and there are industries in Illinois and Chicago that are really hurting for entry-level workers that you know these migrants want to fill it's just not in a you know sort of a a situation where the president has the kind of executive power to sort of you know sign a piece of paper and allow all of these migrants to work uh, unfortunately the the bureaucracy is designed to prevent people from hiring undocumented, prevent companies from hiring undocumented workers. And that has meant that many of the migrants have found any sort of legal path to earn money um, to get out of the city's shelters or to get off of those buses at the landing zones, which has added another layer of complexity and um, and. Uh, problem to sort of any sort of efforts to get a long-term solution to get as many of these people, you know, independent from city help.
1: You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Chicago Tonight's Heather Sharone. Heather, uh, we talked about the landing zone, as they're calling it, uh, where a lot of these migrants are going to be processed and, of course, many of these buses that are coming in now are, are dropping people off in the suburbs. And now even, I believe, some other locations, I think it was Rockford I saw, where a busload of, of uh, migrants were dropped there and I read an article out of Bloomington this week that the city has said that if they receive any migrants, if something like that happens there, they will bus them to the landing zone in Chicago. So this is stretching out beyond Chicago. It's becoming a problem for other cities, not just the big city at this point. Is that right?
2: That's correct, and it is designed for those buses to avoid those fines and fees that Chicago imposed just before the holidays, and in response we've seen a wave of suburbs and downstate towns far away from Chicago, imposing similar fines in an attempt to slow the flow of buses to Chicago. This was also part of the reason why in mid-December, Texas Governor Greg Abbott chartered at least two private planes to bring migrants to Chicago one landed at the Rockford Airport, and then those migrants were bused to Chicago. The other landed at O'Hare. And um, that, I think, was really an indication that these fines and impound threats are really having an impact on Texas's ability to find buses to come to Illinois. Now, in the sim- A similar uh, policy was imposed in New York. In- following in Chicago's footsteps that has prompted buses to drop off migrants in New Jersey and outside New York City. So in a in a real sense, this is a nationwide process or a nationwide problem now. And it's really not clear sort of how it's going to play out um, over the next several months. But there's no indication that it will get significantly better without some sort of um, inflection point in, coming in the near future.
1: And that's one of the things that I think was interesting when I read your story talking about how much Chicago had spent on the migrant situation uh, came in less than what we actually anticipated. Is that correct?
2: That's right. So in mid-September, the city told reporters they expected to spend at least $361 million to care for migrants before the end of 2023. Um, in fact, the city spent only in the neighborhood of about $150 million by the end of the year based on the latest update to the city's payment da- database that came just um, in the past couple of days. Um, I wrote, uh, I tried to sort of figure out uh, why that, that was such a big discrepancy. And the largest amount of money is that the city expected to spend somewhere around $160 million to build those massive winterized base camps that never got off the ground. Originally, the city had planned to build one at 38th and California. Governor JB Pritzker stepped in to say that that was not going to um, happen because of environmental pollution. So that took some of the projected costs right off the top, even though the city moved forward with plans to open more brick and mortar shelters at the same time so it's not a one to one cost saving issue and um, but and the other big factor I think was the fact that the city was able to renegotiate an agreement with favorite staffing which is the firm contracted originally by former mayor Lori Lightfoot to run the shelters to provide security and to to basically care for the migrants. They had been paid more than $90 million in 2023. Johnson was able to renegotiate that contract in October, and that new contract calls for the firm to be paid $40 40 million dollars between October 2023 and October 2024 and it that appears to have resulted in some cost savings but As I've covered this issue, it has been very challenging to sort of figure out exactly what taxpayer money is being spent and how to care for the migrants because it is such an intense crisis period. um, And um, the city has faced a lot of questions about how it's using its resources and whether all of those um, benefits, um, all of those money is translating into real benefits. (laughs) you <laughs> And if 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 you don't mind, Sean, I'll I'll break a little bit of news right here. Um, The mayor just announced midday Friday that he is suspending the 60-day limit on shelter stays until at least January 22nd because of the inclement weather. So I appreciate the mayor making that announcement in time for us to uh, (laughs) include it uh, in this
1: broadcast. Communication is a good thing when it happens at the right time for us, right? So
0: that we've not yeah. discussed, it was written about by Kristen Schorch at, at WBZ in Chicago, is the fact that mental health is a real problem for these migrants. And the, she interviewed, in her story, she says she interviewed more than 30 people to understand the emotional toll migrants face. And the journey to Chicago was very difficult getting here. And now that they're here, they have these problems. Uh, one of the people she spoke to, a, a social worker, who's screened migrant families, they're in a survival mode. They need their base. They need their basic needs met. The number one thing is they're looking for jobs, and the mental health issues are kind of on the back burner. But when the families are settled in, who's going to be providing that that support for them? And so that's something that we have to look. Forward to, if you will, once we get the immediate concerns about people being adequately housed, have access to medical care, then we have to worry about their mental health.
1: Well, we'll continue to follow that story. I do want to get to a couple of other issues on the program this week. Charlie, one of those involved the state's assault weapons ban, which is, of course, in effect, but we're expecting a court challenge, a, a Supreme Court challenge at the national level. There was an effort to get the court to weigh in on that this week, and it was rejected without comment. Uh, this is not the big one that we're waiting for, but it was still uh, still made some news this week. So fill us in on what this was.
0: Yeah, the basically it involved a challenge to the Illinois Supreme Court august decision that upheld the the validity of the assault weapons ban it was a four to three vote and it was appealed by dan calkins who's a state representative and it was appealed on the basis that the two of the justices the the two most recent additions to the court Elizabeth Rochford and Mary Kay O'Brien each received more than a million dollars in campaign donations from Governor Pritzker. Calkin's argument was that they should recuse themselves because they have this conflict of interests. And the justices obviously did not recuse themselves, although actually O'Brien joined Republicans in dissenting from majority opinion, the four to three opinion I should have mentioned this at the outset, this has nothing to do with the Second Amendment at all. It's all a question about the process of was it appropriate for these two justices who received funding from Pritzker, who was actually a defendant in the case, to participate in the ruling. And it was also an argument based on equal protection that why are some people allowed to have the weapons, people being grandfathered in, and other people not allowed to? And so the Second Amendment didn't enter into it at all. What the U.S. Supreme Court did is they did not rule on what is the key fundamental issue involved here, namely, does it unconstitutionally infringe upon the Second Amendment's right to bear arms? That is going to be waiting for another day.
1: All right. And a couple of minutes left here. And I want to bring in uh, Heather once again, because you wrote an analysis piece regarding a trial that was that just occurred up in the Chicago area late last year involving the once powerful and former alderman uh, Ed Burke. He was convicted of corruption. What was the gist of the analysis for those who haven't read it yet?
2: Well, I was really struck by the tr- tapes that we heard. So we heard, or, and the jury heard more than a hundred instances of tapes that the prosecutors and the jury agreed proved that Burke engaged in. T- all sorts of corruption, including ex- attempted extortion and bribery, uh, leading ultimately to his conviction on one count of racketeering. And I was struck just by the the reflexive nature of the corruption that he engaged in. It was almost immediate. Somebody ne- He needed something or somebody needed something. And it was a, an immediate sort of like, hey, how can we get something out of this? Whether it was you know, a new client for his private law firm or campaign cash. And I think the fundamental question Chicagoans are facing in the aftermath of the Ed Burke verdict is why he was allowed to operate this way for decades with apparent um, impunity. And I asked acting US Attorney Morris Pasquale that question and um, he he said, look, we can only bring the cases where we have enough evidence to prove our case. And I, I think that's true, of course, but it misses the fundamental problem that nobody who Ed Burke came in contact with um, blew the whistle. Nobody said, hey, that's that's not acceptable. That's not how Chicago government should operate. And I'm not quite sure that we really understand why that was allowed to embed itself in the way that the that Chicago government operated on a daily basis. And I spoke with Kent Redfield, a, a professor emeritus from the University of Illinois at Springfield. And he made what I thought was a really great point in asking sort of a rhetorical question, is Chicago's system inherently corrupt Or does it corrupt good people? And I think that that's one of those fundamental questions the citizens of Chicago have to ask themselves. And if the system itself is fundamentally flawed, then there needs to be some sort of desire on the pub on the voting public's part to, you know, change the way it operates, or it needs to change the what they find acceptable from their elected officials. And I don't really know any of the answers to these questions, but I think that, you know, with Ed Burke being the 38th older person convicted of con- corruption since 1969, it's it's long past time for um, Chicagoans to sort of start examining the state of affairs and asking whether it should operate, whether it's operating the way it should.
1: Interesting points. We'll go now to our notes from the field. And uh, Charlie, I'm going to go to you first.
0: Well, the state reported this week that Illinois set another record for recreational cannabis sales, more than $1.6 billion in sales. That's roughly a 5% increase from licensed adult use cannabis sales in 2022. This is according to the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. And we bought more products overall too, more than 42 million, which is a 15% jump from the previous year. And in December, it was another all-time monthly high with sales of 154 million. And the state, got roughly 418 million in tax revenue from these sales during the last calendar year. And Heather,
2: well, on uh, this weekend, the policy adopted by the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability banning Chicago police officers from associating with or belonging to extremist or right-wing hate groups takes effect. And I think that the this with this policy taking effect, the onus will shift back to the police department to see whether they can actually enforce this policy because really the fundamental problem facing the police department as identified by the federal government back in 2017 was its inability to hold officers accountable for misconduct. Now, we know through um, a num- uh, several reporting, including from the WBEZ Chicago Sun-Times team, that there's at least a dozen officers who have had ties to these kind of extremist groups, including the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. The question is whether this policy will give department leaders a new way to crack down on these officers, which police superintendent Larry Snelling has said he wants to do, but as always with the police department, the problem is when the rubber meets the road and whether the police union will fight that kind of accountability.
1: OK, well, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Heather Sharone with Chicago Tonight. You can find our show where you get your podcast through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. Join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford.
0: have been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capital by public radio station, NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.